and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I am here with Mike Kalajian. Mike's an awesome guy based in upstate New York. He's a mastering engineer, so this interview is a little bit different than usual because we don't go into a lot of the producer stuff, and instead we talk a lot about audio and what goes into mastering and why this is different and how he sees things. It's really cool. If you don't know Mike, he's worked with groups like The Bouncing Souls, Prawn, Seosin, Against the Current, Moving Mountains, Gates, Hail the Sun, and tons of others. He's been doing some great work, and I think we get a really good conversation that touches a lot of different interesting bases, even if you aren't the biggest mastering nerd. I think there's some really helpful and interesting thoughts in this one. So, check it out. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service, and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, Share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, Tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones, and if you're one of the best ones... We're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list, and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out, and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your chain for recording your voice today? Well, would you believe me if I said it was an NS10 woofer wired in reverse? <laughs> I wouldn't believe you because there's too much trouble. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, you're right. It's not that. No, it's, 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 nothing, uh, it's nothing fancy. It's just like an Audio-Technica microphone through a little Focusrite interface into my laptop. It, it probably would have been something cooler. You know, maybe I had a Sound Deluxe U95 that I really loved. That's a great mic. But yeah. I've since sold pretty much all of my microphones, except for a few kind of utility pieces I keep around, and this audio technique is one of them. So not, nothing to really write home about, but hopefully you can hear my voice. Nice. So tell me about your background in music. I guess I started playing pretty young, maybe eight or nine years old. I, I picked up a guitar. My uncle is what I would guess I would call a serious hobbyist musician and producer. He was always really into it. It was never his day job. But he was constantly playing and constantly recording and and had tape machines and everything like that. My father is also a hobbyist, maybe not quite as serious, but as a result, you know, there were guitars all around and I started playing them pretty early. And then I guess sometime around like junior high, Mm -hmm. I started, you know, get playing or trying to start playing in bands with friends and there were no good drummers. Nobody played the drums, or at least not, you know, they couldn't keep a beat. So I was like, you know what, I could probably do this. So I kind of became a drummer out of necessity, and that kind of transformed into my main instrument. I mean, I can I can hack it at guitar, and I'm, you know, a decent guitar player, I guess, but I noticed that a lot of my peers were getting a lot better than I was, mm. and it, drums just came easy to me, and I always enjoyed it. So, I mean, that, that kind of was it, playing drums forever. Um... 
when I got right out of college, signed a deal with actually Rise Records, which mm-hmm. was a very different record so, so, label so at the time. I was, but. I was trying to remember the band name the other day when Johnny and I were talking like a few weeks ago. What, what was the band again? Sure. Okay. So the band was called Life Before This. That's and, it. Yes. And, and you were maybe going to do a record for us. I, I, I remember we met because yeah, you guys were friends with the Escape Engine, who I produced and managed. And I yes. saw you guys at Bloomfield Ave Cafe. Yep, yep. About five blocks from and I remember. I yeah, I remember meeting you before the show, and you mm. were like, "You, you're the drummer. You better hit hard, man. Mm. <laughs> really, hit really hard." And I was like, "Oh my god, this guy really." So, so after the show, you were like, "Yeah, yeah I think." I, think, oh, I remember I think you guys good. were a um, very, very good band. It was always oh, thanks, that thing man. of um, I remember like me and the guys for this escape intro, or, 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 you you guys were one of those bands were always like God like what is it that they're not getting ahead? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that for whatever reason, you know, we had a lot of fun and we played played some cool shows and had some amazing experiences. It just never really caught on. But I think that that happens a lot. Yeah. you know, I'm not I'm not mad about it. It was yeah, it's one, one of those of things. Uh, life, so. You know, you can be a great band and there still is just like some luck and circumstance factors that have to come through. Yeah. Totally. And I think bands liked us. You know, we were like kind of like a band's band for a little while. And I think ultimately that helped me a lot mm. with my recording career. You know, I made most of my early contacts that way. I, I, you know, this is something I talk about a lot, too, is that um, so like some of my most successful records, I always joke, I've never gotten one job off of them because they're not the type of band that other bands respect. Yeah. They're yeah. like a, a band that 15 year old girls like. Yep. And. Yep. Because of that, I get none, and then some obscure prog band that sells half as many copies or a quarter as many will get me 20 jobs. Yeah, totally. There's, there's like, fans' bands and then bands' bands. Yep. And, and definitely doing a, the, the right record for a band that other bands like can just be huge. Totally. You know, kind of off the radar, for sure. So you're signed to Rise Records. Yeah, we, we, we signed a, just a one-record deal because I wound up doing the record myself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Craig, who, you know, still doing obviously super well with Rise, mm-hmm. uh, was a much smaller operation then. He just loved us. You know, it was clear. He was awesome, and he was, you know, super supportive. And Because at the time, we had interest from two majors, uh, Atlantic and Island. So we were, like, you know, going to do that. And he was like, listen, you know, I'm here no matter what. You know, even if, I don't blame you guys for wanting to do these bigger deals, but if they don't work out for whatever reason, I, I will always put out a record for you. For one reason or another, which is kind of a very long story, those big deals didn't pan out, mm-hmm. and he was there. So we were like, "Cool," and we, you know, wound up doing the record with him, and it was it was great. Again, did a ton of touring, played you know shows with a lot of awesome bands, met tons of cool people, you know, lost a lot of money, but that's kind of it was like my college experience because huh. I went to full, full sale. I really oh wow like okay a proper college experience. Were, so, were, were you down there for a year or two years? I was down there for a year. It was back in like maybe. 01 or 02. Mm-hmm. I did the one year recording program. She did like a record for Fearless out of a uh, rehearsal, uh, not even a rehearsal space, a storage unit <laughs> huh. in Florida while I was going to full sale. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, did you go? Did, were you full uh, sale? I, it's funny. I went down there, I toured it, and I'm like the ultimate New York City person. Like, I don't exist anywhere but here. So uh-huh. I went down there and saw how backwards it was. I was like, I'm going to Institute of Audio Research, even if it's a worse school. I can't not be in New York City. Yeah, in hindsight, I, I probably should have done something like that, too. I mean, I don't want to bash Full Sail. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt like, you know, 
I, I learned a little bit there, but then in like the couple of years subsequently doing recording, I, I learned so much more and relearned yeah. a lot of the things that I think that you know weren't really quite accurate that I learned there. But like I said, doing the whole touring thing and and, mm. and sleeping in a van and stuff, like I kind of like look back at that as like my college years in a way. You know, it was like mm-hmm. this similar sort of thing. You know, get getting out of my system before I became an old guy living at home. <laughs> nice. So tell me about how this uh, band guy producer transition happens. You know, really what it was is I was doing both recording, you know, my own stuff and recording other bands and, and playing. And because of it, I didn't have a studio. I was like, you know, had a, rented a house with a couple guys and I was, you know, recording in the living room and they didn't love that or recording mm. out of garages or going to bands rehearsal spaces and, you know, recording like that. And, you know, the band thing was fun, but I kind of saw the writing on the wall that it wasn't going anywhere. And I, I kind of had this, like, epiphany one day, and I imagined, you know, us being as successful as we could possibly be, you know, mm-hmm. touring on a bus or whatever. And it just didn't quite appeal to me as much as it once did. And I remember some advice that I got from two people actually told me the exact same thing. One is um, John DeClario, who's mm-hmm. always been like a huge kind of mentor to me and, and just all around awesome guy. Uh, he said that um, you, you can't do both. You know what I mean? It's really, mm. really hard to like, at least at that time, have a studio and have, you know, be successful and focus on recording and be successful and focus on a band. And both, both are kind of full-time jobs. I also heard that from uh, Matt Squire, who mm. we had been doing some demos with. He said the same thing. He's like, look, man, you got you to gotta pick one or the other. Mm-hmm. So kind of with that in mind and then equipped with this new kind of insight or this new feeling that I didn't really want to be on the road no matter what the level was. It was like, you know, I, I just got to – I can't really do the band thing anymore. I really want to focus on building my career um, as an engineer. And it, it was the, for me, it was the case. I mean, I remember like a year after I did that, looking back and saying, wow, like, look how far I've come. You know, I, I have a place that I'm working out of now. I have regular work. I actually have gear. I'm comfortable in my space. I, I've been doing records in the same space for a year now, and they're actually starting to sound good. So, so that was kind of how I made that transition. Gotcha. And so then tell me about the transition from producer to master engineer. So that was kind of something that I always wanted to do. You know, I always wanted to master records, and I kind of always did on the side. You it, know, it, I, I, I know this was covered on your working class audio po- podcast, but that is very rare. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I like just no, always... no, no, no one wants to. Like I'm, I do a lot of mastering. I didn't want to do this. Alan Douchis always says, like, he's like, no, I wanted to be a producer, and then this just made sense. Yeah, I just kind of wanted to listen to the music once it was done. That was always the most enjoyable part. I, mean, I agree with you on that, actually. It, 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 like, there are obviously moments, you know, and some of my best moments in this industry have been tracking and recording, but looking at the entire body of work, just listening back to the product is the most gratifying for me. Mm-hmm. But but my father was an audiophile, so he kind of like had the big speakers and the super nice audiophile gear. And, you know, I would look at, at these albums and read liner notes and see these names of these mastering engineers. And then there was no Google, of course, back mm-hmm. then, but I would see them in magazines or whatever. Like I said, my uncle was somewhat of a hobbyist, so he had, you know, early issues of audio media or what, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. The, and I would see these mastering rooms, and they kind of reminded me of what my father's listening room was like, you know, with these big speakers. And I was like, I want to listen to music on these. I don't want to listen to NS10s. NS10s sound like shit. You know, I want to hear the big picture. Um, so, yeah, for whatever reason, I, I gravitated toward it. 
whenever somebody would, you know, ask me if I wanted to master something, I would just do it. And I kind of just, I think, became a guy in my area that did mastering for like super cheap that wouldn't butcher a record, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I necessarily did a great job, but I could do it, or at least I thought I could do it. And eventually it just became more and more and more of my workflow until I got to the point where I was like, yeah, you know, I can do this full time, but if I want to do this full time, I can't be doing it, you know, or I don't want to be doing it on studio monitors with, you know, a couple key pieces of equipment. I want to go all in. So I just took everything that I had bought over the years recording wise and sold it all. Hmm. I just had like a fire sale, clean my studio out. Literally the only thing I didn't sell was my desk, my Sterling modular desk and my computer. Everything Hmm. else went. And then bought, you know, all new mastering gear. And it was like, that's it. That's all I'm doing at the time. And I was pretty booked up as an engineer. Actually, I was probably overbooked. I kind of said yes to everything. And that's maybe another thing that led to this. Mm. Because I was like, I had like 10 projects going on at a time. And I was super stressed out. And, you know, bands would get angry. Not angry, but anxious. They wanted their mixes. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you know, one one day in band musician time waiting for a mix is two years in their mind. And, uh an hour in ours. Exactly. So I, I, I just, I couldn't handle it. I had a kid, you mm. know, and I, I was like spending like 14 or 15 hours a day in the studio at least. And, and I was like, okay, enough. I'm going to try this mastering thing. And uh, in, knock on wood, it's been great. It's worked out pretty well. So, so, so to rewind a bit on something you said, I thought, thought, thought you said something because I think it's a unique thing. So you're listening to these audiophile recordings. Was there anything that really influenced you here? Because I think that that's a pretty rare thing. Like, I always talk about, like, two things that I think were, like, handicaps for me personally. Is, like, one, growing up on shitty punk records of the 90s that were recorded so terrible as compared to growing up on Steely Dan, I had to, like, learn some standards. Uh And then, two, I listened on trash growing up. Was there any lessons you kind of learned hearing on great systems? Yeah, for sure. I mean... I guess, you know, I, I grew up listening to what my dad was into, which was like Peter Gabriel, mm. and Pink Floyd, Roger Waters. Good taste. Uh, yeah, he was into kind of all that stuff, which was, you know, pretty much the state of the art as far as recordings were considered mm-hmm. for that time and probably still. So and then I would, you know, I, I was big into punk, too. I mean, that was I definitely, you know, had that was a huge part of my musical upbringing. But I would bring my punk records down into the living room and listen to it on my dad's speakers and it always sounded like garbage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I became very cognizant of like the difference between something that was really, really awesome sounding and then something that, that wasn't. And not to say that that isn't part of the allure of punk rock. I mean, I think that like a super polished punk rock record isn't as much of a punk record as one mm. that sounds like, you know, Minor Threat or whatever. But I was, it was obvious. It was stark that, mm. that there was a big difference between these recordings and, and the other recordings. And I was fascinated with like what that, what that was, you know? Interesting. So talk to me a bit more about that producer to mastering transition. You and I had previously discussed somewhat of like why you think you didn't get as far as you did in the producer field. Do you have any insight on that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting because when I, you know, stopped doing it completely. And, you know, again, I, you know, I don't want to jinx myself, but it seems like my mastering career so far had in, in just a short time, you know, a year and a half or two years, I've come a lot further than I ever did as a producer. Mm. And I always kind of, you know, at least after the fact, and I did this during, but I had a new perspective after the fact as to why that was. And, it, and it, it was never, you know, I always felt that, that I could do a pretty good job of making a record. I could make a good sounding record. And that I, you know, 
bands seemed to like me. I charged reasonable rates, and I was pretty booked, but I never had that breakthrough success that I think that I was always hoping for and a lot of people are going for. So afterwards, I was able to look back and really kind of pick apart why I thought that was. And actually, my main reason for doing that is because I share a space with two other engineers and they're younger engineers and they're up and coming. So I wanted to be able to like give them advice, you know, mm-hmm. like what, what can, now that I've kind of like rounded out this chapter of my life and my career, like what can I learn from it and how can I help them? So I think that at least in, in my instance, I think big part of it for me was that I never worked under somebody. I never did the whole like scrubbing the toilets and getting the coffee thing. And I know that not mm-hmm. everybody has that opportunity. I know that it's not necessary, mm-hmm. but I could have done that. And at the time, I was like, you know what? I'm going to make more money by recording this band in this garage, and I'm going to be able to buy more beer. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Like, I, like, I'm going to take the 200 bucks rather than not make the 200 bucks this week. You know, it was like nothing in hindsight. Yeah. But I never, never did that. I never really learned from anybody great, and I always tried to forge my own path, which I'm proud of, and I'm proud of what I was able to do. But I think that that kind of inhibited my success a bit, and I was always kind of like afraid to go out of my comfort zone, um, even hmm. like geographically, you know, I kind of stayed up in the Hudson Valley. You know, I look at that guys like John Leclerio, who mm-hmm. was successful and, and continues to be successful. But I think that it's tougher to make it like he made it just like starting out with nothing and building it from scratch than it is like getting in with somebody, proving your worth to somebody who who is already established and kind of working that way. And I think in, in hindsight, you know, if I were to you know, make the decision to ride out the producer thing and really do it for, you know, for the rest of my life, I would have preferred to kind of go that way and mm. uh, work under somebody, you know. So that's just one thing. Interesting, I, yeah. I, I should have been, I should have been closer to like a big, big market, you know. I, I That's what I told these guys, like, hey, the one guy in here, I was like, dude, you need to be in Los Angeles. Like, yeah. you'd, kill, you'd kill there. He's an unbelievable engineer, you know. Um, and he's really kind of like into the pop punk thing and the super polished sound. But we're in like a hippie town upstate, mm-hmm. you know, there's not really too too much of that. And the chances of him getting a band that's going to break and, and, and blow up and, and, and blow up for him is, I think, pretty diminished by us being, you know, in the middle of the woods. I hate to say it. No, I, 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 I think you're exactly right. And I, I, I always say, like, you know, the luck of me growing up in New Jersey and, you know, so many of my friends were in humongous bands. And so even just getting that thing of like, oh, this guy in this big band says we should record with him because I grew up with these people. It did a lot for my career. Sure. I mean, that that boom of music that happened at that time period in New Jersey, and I think that, you know, that's the same thing with John. I mean, he, he did a lot of that work too. I saw that, and that's kind of what I was like, you know what, there's going to be something like this for me, you know, mm-hmm. in, in five years or in 10 years. There's going to, you know, whatever whatever the next, or, you know, maybe I thought that that was going to keep going. And I think it, it died off a little bit, and it I definitely wasn't did. able to, you know. So it's it's interesting. I saw it happening all around me when I was young, and I had these stars in my eyes. But you know, in hindsight, I kind of like missed that <laughs> missed that wave a little bit, you know. But it's how it goes. You, know, yeah. you can't really you can't really uh, plan for that, and gotta make the best of it. Totally. So let's get back to you and what you do now. Um, so you have your own studio. Tell us a little bit about the studio. 
Sure, yeah. It's uh, we're up in New Paltz, New York, which. Uh, you know, for as much as I just said it wasn't the best place to be for a young engineer, it's awesome up here. I don't know if you've ever been up into the area. I, I, ha- I have been up there a bit, yes. Yeah, it's like the super laid back, you know, area. It's beautiful, especially in the spring and summer, you know. It's 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 just a very relaxing place to live. But we're, yeah, we're up here in the woods. We're in a big warehouse. It's about 2,600 square feet. We have a whole floor of it. And the studio is three pretty big control rooms and a, and a big drum room. I mean, the drum room's probably like 45 feet long by like 30 feet. It's a big room. And my room, you know, we, we originally built kind of, we built it all ourselves. I mean, we had builders come in and put everything up, but the design was originally done ourselves. We kind of came up into this big open space, did some drawings, and eventually we just put painter's tape down on the floor where we wanted walls, you know, mm-hmm. and kind of gave some instruction to these guys, and they built the whole thing up. So when I switched over to mastering, I actually hired um, Crossley Acoustics, mm-hmm. which are down in Brooklyn, awesome guys. And they came in and looked at my room, which was set up as a tra- you know, control room at the time. And they were like, okay, if you're just going to do mastering, this is what you need to do. And we pretty much gutted the whole room and we uh, rebuilt it for you know, better symmetry and better low-end response. And now it's, I, I love it. I mean, it's probably not the best room in the world, but to me, it's, I come in here and I know exactly what, I'm going to hear. And yeah. that, that's all that matters is knowing your room, I think, is everything. You know, if there's one thing we're, we, we see time and time again is great records these days are made in insane spaces that aren't always the perfect place. They're just made by people who know their room well. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So tell me about something that makes your studio unique or one of your coolest pieces of gear. I think it's probably a tie between the speakers that I have here. I have B&W 802s. Those are, those are some of my favorite speakers I've ever heard music on. Or I think I've heard the 801s. Yeah, well, they're, they're pretty similar. The mm-hmm. 801s have the same mid-range and tweeter. The 801s are like 115. Mm-hmm. And then these are two, like, I don't know, they look like 10s, 10-ish mm-hmm. inch. Actually, I was. it's funny because I know Ted Jensen has the 801s. Mm-hmm. And I was chatting with him at one point and asking him about you know the differences and he told me that he actually thought that the the, the mid-range was a little bit better on the 802s for whatever reason i think the, the 801s have a little bit more low end but i imagine that they're mm. very similar um, yeah you know until you get down to the very low frequencies but i, th- I think it's the funny thing too with, like you know that all these speaker companies that have all these different models, they are all a similar tone. Like the ear of the person designing them always sounds pretty similar. Then there's just subtleties. And B&Ws, mm-hmm. no matter which ones I've heard, they all have a certain sound that's very real and no hype and just detailed. Oh, yeah. Like when you listen to like a solo guitar, if it's like an electric guitar, mm-hmm. it, it sounds like there's a cab in the room, not a mm. speaker. I mean, it's pretty wild. The, the mid-ranges are huge. And they, and they sound it. But yeah, I mean, that was, you know, going back to the early days with me listening to these audiophile speakers. I remember when I got these speakers, I, I picked them up in Queens one night. My buddy and I loaded them into my truck. It was freezing cold. We, we almost like slipped on the ice and dropped them on us like a dozen times. And they're like 200 pounds. <laughs> wow. But yeah, but we finally got them up here and hooked them up. And I put on Pink Floyd, The Final Cut, which is always mm. one of my favorite sounding records. And I had that moment of like, yes, this is what I remember. This is what it sounded like listening back to, you know, that record when I was 10 years old, you know, on my dad's stereo. So that's definitely a huge thing. I mean, I don't think that I could master an album without them, Hmm. you know, but I could probably master a record if I had to 
in the box with just them. But if not for them, it's probably these two NIF pieces I have. I have a NIF EQ and a NIF compressor that are just like indispensable. Mm. You know, they just make my life super easy. You know, it's one of those things where if you're gonna add a little, bi- little bit of high end to something, you add it on these and suddenly it's better than it you know was before and it doesn't sound EQ'd and that's pretty magical. Very cool. So tell me about the biggest mistake you see bands or engineers do before getting their record mastered or the biggest mistake that I see bands do before getting their stuff mastered is booking their record release show. Oh, great answer. Great answer. It happens all the time. Everything is completely set in motion and it's like, okay, you have like 24 hours to master this stuff and Mm -hmm. that's fine. I'll do it. You know, but then, but then it's like, you know, you spent like two months recording it and two years before that, writing it mm. you know i i don't charge anything for revisions let's fool around with this a little bit you know yeah. I, I don't really subscribe to that whole like you send it to me i send it back and it's done approach yeah, yeah. very much like let's work on this you know I, I i don't charge anything for recalls and i want the people to be totally happy and if i have a client that's like you know i like this but let's try one a little bit brighter and let's try one a little bit darker okay i'll mm-hmm. send you both that's fine and we'll, we'll pick what we like the best um you know you do it with mixing you might as well do it with mastering mm-hmm. um but that's the big thing is that they just like put you know it's kind of the classic you know local band move is they have booked the venue and they've sold the tickets and you know they're still tracking vocals or something <laughs> and it's funny because you do want a band to be hardworking and motivated but like the not the the uh parkinson's law of like making everything go to the last minute that you're like i have six months to do this and then everything gets crammed to the end of those six months and you dicked around for the first four months it's just yeah. it's terrible yeah. it's terrible and it does not do good things for your the most important thing which is having great music yeah, I mean, I've, I've you know, done a master. I, at one point, I, my studio was probably about 45 minutes or maybe a little bit further away from my house. It isn't anymore, but mm. I, I would do a master. I sent it to the client. I went home, and they were like, okay, we need this tweak, but we need it tonight. Uh-huh. And it's like, okay, like, you really need it. Like, I'll do it, and I don't argue, you know, I won't argue with them, but I want to make sure that they really need it before I get in my car and drive an hour back to, to like, add one dB at, like, you know, 200 hertz or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, do you really need this? And they're like, yes, we absolutely need it. And it was like, you know, in that case, it was a local band, and I, and I respect it. They have their thing going on, and I'm, I'm never going to call them out. I'm never going to belittle them. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of times bands, like, they don't realize that, like, you know, a week or two isn't going to make a difference, but it's not going to cost you a single sale in your record. A lot, And a lot of times, you know, they're just very excited, and they, mm-hmm. they have a hard time differentiating their excitement from, like, an actual real good reason to get it out quicker. So they, they rush things along. So that's probably the biggest thing. I mean, other than that, I think, you know, like, not really listening to the mixes as much as they probably should. You know, a mm-hmm. lot of times I'll do a master and I'll send it back, and they're like, okay, this is great, but, like, we didn't realize that there's, like, this bum guitar note. And so we're going to send you a new mix, you know, or something like that. I mean, but it's pretty minor. Usually they're pretty good about it. Nice. How about the smartest thing you see bands do during the mastering process? Yeah. So I think that the the smartest thing is just, um, aside from not booking the record release show, is, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, organizing everything in advance, figuring out, you know, the track orders, you know, what kind of delivery medium they're going for, you know, just getting everything technically put together. A, a lot of people don't realize and a lot of bands don't realize is that 
just as much as mastering is about EQ or compression or making it sound different, it's probably even more about like the final assembly. I mean, traditionally, mm. mastering really wasn't even that much about changing the sound. Mm-hmm. It was just about taking all these mixes and like getting them all organized and getting them into one place to deliver to a consumer. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a huge part of it. And I think it's like an overlooked part of it. So getting that stuff completely organized and, and, and knowing the answers to the questions like, What's the track order? Do you do we need to go for vinyl? Are we doing mastered for iTunes? You know, all, all that different stuff. Where are the fade outs going to be? You know, what's the transition like between this song and this song? Um, having all that stuff in in advance, I think, is probably the smartest thing that a band can do. Nice, yeah. And you make a great point. Like I remember being at like an AES panel like nine years ago, and somebody was talking about like, well, in the seventies, we got a whole record side on a reel-to-reel and they were already cut with the transitions and how much space they wanted in between the songs already and all we did was load that on the vinyl yeah yeah it's like if you were a really great mastering engineer back in the in the day i guess Mm -hmm. i I should say and i wasn't there but the impression that i get is like you were the guy who could get the tape onto the vinyl without fucking it up yes you (laughs) you can just like this sounds just like it sounded in the studio you're awesome you know, so so it was much more of like a, a technical thing, and probably more difficult than it is today. But I think that the 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 EQ and the and the artistic part of it is sexier, so people tend to kind of like promote that more. But the technical aspect of it is huge. Mm-hmm. You know, it's probably the the most important thing I think. Mm. What's the craziest thing you've had to do to get a master to work? I've I've had clients, you know, come down with their entire rig and oh, set yeah. it up in my room. And kind of like feed the output into my mastering chain. And so and did you ever do that as a mixer to anybody? I never did, no. I probably would have benefited from it in, in a few circumstances. Um, I, I, I did it to Alan Douches, I think, on three records. And all three of them, I don't think, were made better. And when I said that to him, he was like, yeah, you think? Like, just always the nicest person to me. And then was totally insulting to me about that. He's like, it did not make it better. Nail it. Get it right. Don't rely on me to make it work. Yeah, yeah, and I kind of agree with that. I think in in this instance, there was uh, there were a couple guys that I were working with, and they were newer, you know, to mixing mm-hmm. and everything like that. And you know, they would send me the mix, and I would take a listen to it. And I, I I do that whenever a client wants, you know, just send it. I'll listen. I'll give you feedback. And it and it was like, well, you know, like it just. You know when you get a mix and it, it sounds like the guy is pretty good and he's pretty talented, but mm-hmm. he's listening in a room that's completely out of whack and mm-hmm. you can hear it. You know what I mean? It's like your room is like boosting everything below 500 hertz by like 6 dB. It's clear because <laughs> the mix is just totally tilted in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, well, let's try to turn up some of these low-end elements. And then they do it and you just know that it's like not quite right because they're not hearing it right. So sometimes, you know, with these guys, and there are people who I kind of know personally, mm-hmm. be like, you know what, man, just like come over and bring, uh, they're working in the box, bring your computer and listen to it in my room and you're going to hear exactly what I'm talking about. That's probably the craziest thing I've done to make a master work. I, I think I may, I, I think I said this in the working class audio one, but the, the craziest thing I ever did to get work mm. is uh, a, a guy who's a client of mine, great guy, um, his name is Bo Burchell. He's oh, okay. Yeah. He's a Sayosin guy, right? Sayosin guy, yeah. So I was always a huge fan of his production work. And I mastered an EP he worked on because I was in contact with the band. And I was like, man, this guy's great. Like, I want to do more work for this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of touched base with him. And he's a super nice guy. But at one point, I don't know how it came up, he wanted to have some of those classic API mic pre's built, the 500 series mm-hmm. ones. Mm-hmm. And he and either he didn't want to do it himself or just didn't have the time or whatever. And I, I built 
you know, that was what I used when I engineered. I built more than that can possibly count. But I was mm. like, hey, man, I will build these for you. I'm just going to build them. Just buy them, have them sent to my house. I'll put them together and send them to you for nothing. But I want you to start sending me test masters. Mm. And, and then he was like, yeah, totally. And he did. And now, you know, he sends most of his work to me. So that's probably the craziest thing I ever did to get a master. Nice. Uh, that, that is pretty cool. Do you suggest bands attend mastering or not? I know this is a, a, a hot button thing for a lot of people. It's tough. There's mm-hmm. both, there's two sides to this. From like a from like a hardline economist perspective, mm-hmm. I don't want them here. Uh, just because I think I do the best work mm-hmm. when they're not. I think a lot of mixers kind of feel the same way. You just want to like get into the zone. You want to vibe out. You know what I mean? You want to get up and pace around the room a little bit, and then sit back down. You know, go outside, get some water. Sit. You know, I think that when a client is here, a lot of times they have this expectation of how it's going to go, and you almost have to like play to that a lot of times okay i'll put it this way when i've had attended sessions here and i've done everything from the ground up with the client mm-hmm. here i don't think that the work comes out as good as it does when it's just me i'm in my zone um and i'm just doing my work on the other side of that i think that having them here to do stuff like the transitions mm-hmm. having them listen through it uh can be very re- rewarding for me and the client but getting back to the other side of the coin I never get anything like a mix or a mastering tweak, an EQ move tweak when they're sitting in my chair listening to my speakers because they're usually, you know, of course they're not familiar mm. with my room. They're not familiar with the speakers. So how could they be like, oh, you know, this is a little brighter, this is a little darker, you know, it's kind of hard to make that call. And usually if they're going to make the call, it's going to be when they get home and listen on their own speakers. So, I, so from the terms of like what's the most efficient workflow and what brings the best result in the end, I think it's usually having them at home send me the stuff, I master it, send it back, they can listen and, and make any tweaks. Um, yes. And I think most of the work is just that way out of necessity mm-hmm. anyway. So it's not like I have guys beating down the door to come sit on the couch while I master stuff and, I, and I'm like, no, I don't want you here. You know, that's it kind of that's how, you know, it, 90% of the sessions are unattended and, and I like to work that way and I think clients like the convenience too. So it works Yeah, out. I think you make all good points. I think that that's one of the <clears throat> things too is that – um. It's often better if if it's they're just coming for the sequence. It's like, why don't you sequence it with your producer who you're already in the studio with and then let me send you stuff so you hear where it on your best speakers. And as somebody who attended every mastering session for years, I realized how much bad I did with that for years, uh, torturing mastering engineers with that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, 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 know, you, li- you have to listen through it and then, you, and then they have to, you know, sit. I let them sit in the chair and they listen through it. And, you know, it's not like I'm, you know, counting the clock or looking at the mm. clock at all. But if I can just like, you know, in the amount of time it takes me to upload it and send it over to them and for them to listen to their own space, I mean, it takes like, you know, 10 minutes for me to get a record to a client and then they can listen to it and give me tweaks. And, you know, it, it just I think that ultimately when the record comes out, it sounds better if we kind of do this back and forth online thing. Um, and that's, that's just something that I've mm-hmm. noticed, you know, over the years. And I, and, and I think that that's the goal, right? You know, whatever you can do to make the record. I think that's right. a great way to put it. Tell me about what you think you bring to records most often. I, I think that, you know, any mastering engineer kind of just brings, you know, a, a fresh perspective. I mean, maybe that's a little cliche, but, you know, it's easy. And I know this as a guy who mixed and produced forever. It's easy to get so inside the project that you really can't ever step back and just listen and and I think that there's so much value in that like first impression like the knee-jerk reaction to what 
you're hearing out of your speakers. And you can never have that as a producer. I mean, maybe if you took a couple weeks and didn't listen to the mix and then came back to it, you, you could. Um, but I think that something that, that uh, differentiates you know, great mastering engineers from, from you know, maybe not so great mastering engineers is the quality and, and the, the accuracy of that first quick reaction when you put something on and you you, you know I'll, I'll listen to something that really sounds great you know I'll put on one of my favorite records to refresh my ears in the studio and then I listen to a master and it's like that first listen you're just like wow this is this you know this is how this sounds there's no other way to really get that and I think that that is something that any 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 good mastering engineer brings to a project I think the other thing and actually I heard Dave McNair says mm-hmm. who's a great mastering engineer. He he said this on a podcast is that you have to be able to distinguish whether or not a client wants you to do a lot mm-hmm. or they want you to do nothing. Um and that's something that I've definitely learned uh over the last year and a half. You get guys that they just it sounds great and you don't have to mess with it. You mm-hmm. don't mess it up. And that's just as important. You know, it's, it's easy to think like, oh, I want to earn my money. I got to EQ this, you know, or I got to add a little bit of compression or whatever. But you're, earn, you're earning your money by having that perspective on the, on the project. And sometimes that calls for doing very little, you know, and that, that's something I always try to keep in my mind. I just want to listen to it first. And if it sounds great, I don't want to. I don't want to change that. You know, I do something very, very minor if it needs it. But then sometimes, like I said, sometimes it's just like way out in space somewhere, and you got to do all sorts of crazy stuff to rein it back in. And 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 I think that the it's important to be able to make that. I, I think that's even great advice for producers. I I think that the biggest flaw some producers have is, I just did a panel actually, and like this one producer who will remain nameless was like. Well, I just do whatever I can to get as much percentage points on it, as many points and as many songwriting things. And it's like, what about if it's just fucking great? And it's like, yeah, sometimes yeah. it's really good to stay out of the, out of the way. And uh, I think that there's like, there's a few bands and it's not the usual case that it's like, get out of their way and let them be great and try to just maximize that as much as you can and not put your, everything you do in it when they're already full with ideas. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I, I saw it all the time. I mean, you know, when I was in bands, we worked with guys that were like, you know, cha- this is not the chorus, write a new chorus. And it's like, well, I like, and then and then afterwards, we would all look back and we would be like, well, no, this chorus isn't as mm. good as the other one. But I think so, a lot in, in every kind of aspect of the recording process, there's, you have to d- differentiate between whether you're trying to make something better or you're just trying to like validate, you know, your your paycheck. Yes, that's a a good way of uh, putting it. Tell me one of the best moments you've had in the studio. So one of my fondest memories is is not not too far, you know, not not too long ago. It was actually the last production I ever did for a band. Uh, It was this band called Somewhere in Time. They're young kids from Connecticut, and I I just think that they're awesome. They're so incredibly talented. It was one of those deals where they really, I'd worked with them before, and we kind of worked on a limited budget. And we always knew that if we had the right budget, we could make something really, mm. truly great. So when they wanted to come back to record, it was one of those deals where I was like, you know, why don't you guys try to do a Kickstarter? Why don't you guys try to like raise some money? I, it's not that I want to get mm. rich off this, but I want you to be able to afford enough time that we can really work on this. You know, I, I want to be able to feel like I 
did my absolute best work and didn't cut any corners and neither did you on this process. And that's something that is, I, I think is mm-hmm. super rare in production. You're always limited by something, whether it's money or time or, or you know, um, Sometimes it's the band that's yeah limiting. the talent yeah yeah so so, yeah, I, so somebody uh, s- said like you know it's like that Venn diagram but you can only pick two yeah yeah exactly yeah was it was it like you want something yeah. done quickly done well yeah. or done for you know cheap and pick two so this band I knew that they were great and I, I wanted to have all three uh, I, I knew that this was going to be my last production because I'd made that decision to switch over to mastering and. I wanted to go out mm-hmm. with a bang and do everything, you know, the best I could possibly do it. So we did five songs, and I think that we spent almost like three and a half weeks or like a month doing these five songs, and like just did everything, you know, like I couldn't, ha- I couldn't, and I listen to it now, and it's like I could not have done it better. That's the best recording that I'm capable mm. of doing, and I'm so glad that I have that to look back on. You know what I mean? Like that's the high watermark of where I got before I stopped doing it. So that just was a great experience. That's awesome. Um, And I think the thing that that's the thing is that's one of those things that we're all always trying to do. But I I guess my follow-up question would be, though, you have to have had thoughts like, but what if this blows up and I just become a mastery engineer? This is the biggest record. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know what I would have done if that if that happened. It it it, mm. it didn't blow up, um, <laughs> but it probably should have. I still listen to it all the time, and I'm like, wow, you know, I'm I'm really really happy with this. I think that the songs are great. You know, we did the whole thing with pre pro mm. and like you know really sat down and made sure that the the tracks were ready and everything was the best. And and you know, I from the outset I was like, I'm not going to use any drum samples on this recording. Not that I have any problem. Mm-hmm. with them but you know I'm, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do as much work as I can to make this as 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 you know this is well, I want this to be mm. my ideal and and it was it, it told I, I I hit the mark I'm a hundred percent happy with what I did and I'm so glad that I I had that because I think that if I had you know never and, and not to say that there aren't other records that I'm a hundred percent happy with but to have that like soup to nuts completely fulfilling experience if I hadn't had that and I stopped recording it would have always been like you know mm. what if yeah that's know? a great point how about one of the worst moments you've had and what you learned from it? So the worst moment that I can think of is I had a band from Pittsburgh come to record with me, and we did like three or four songs, and we were on, it was the night before the last day of tracking, and I was getting ready to leave the studio, and I dropped the hard oh. drive while it was still spinning, yeah, with their sessions on it. So I had to call the band that night and tell them like, look, first off, we it's tr- there's no. I spent like you know two or three hours trying to recover the, the the data, but it was just gone. So I had to call them and tell them, you know, I had backed up the drum mm-hmm. tracks I think on the first day, but but then we like it was like a shorter session, like three or four days, and for like two days I hadn't backed anything up. And I remember we got some tones that were like. I was like, wow, this is like the best bass tone I've ever gotten. Oh. And I had to call them, yeah, and tell them, like, look, I am so sorry. I don't know how to tell you guys this except just to say it. I, I lost everything except for the drums. So, I, you know, I, I gave them their money back. I paid, I re- refunded them for their hotel stay and uh, gave them the drum tracks so they could go to a different engineer and record it back home. And they were mm. super cool about it. They were, like, nice guys, and they could tell that I was just beside myself about it. But that was definitely like one of the crummiest moments. I, I had that happen maybe ten years earlier on a much smaller scale. I lost like you know a mm-hmm. day's worth of work on an album, and we made it up. But that was like one of those things where it was like you know what? From now on, 
I'm going to be insane about backing things up and saving everything. Yeah, and uh, it usually takes that uh, that burn to uh, make you cautious. It's uh, I heard I learned a good. Uh, Construction saying that what you hope happens is you just nick your thumb the first time because then you don't lose it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because yeah. at some point you're gonna get too comfortable and you're gonna the thumb's gonna hit the blade a little bit. Yeah, I I went I, you know I was you know I remember early on when I didn't know how to use Pro Tools I lost mm. stuff all the time but it was usually like my own stuff and I made a point of like really you know learning how to use that region mm. and not lose stuff. And I just got too comfortable with it, you know, and and uh, I, I wasn't prepared for it. And I like, pulled the hard drive out of the computer and like slipped and boom, then down it went. Oh, and, man. You know, yeah. lesson learned. Yeah. Oh, God. It was like one of those moments that like I, my heart stopped for like 20 seconds, it felt like. And I just I, I knew that it was going to be gone. And then I put it back in the computer and, you know, it always takes mm-hmm. a second for the drive to mount. <laughs> so I'm just I was like, was like that second turned into five years of your life. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, it's still trying to mount somewhere. But it's, <laughs> yeah, I, I, so I, I learned from it. And now I'm, you know pretty fanatical about backing everything up on two hard drives and um i think it was brian hood was on your show and he talked about like just having a constant dropbox yeah, backup, yeah. which i thought was brilliant i'm i'm we're waiting for they're gonna do like 300 megabyte per second internet Ooh. here at the studio in a couple of weeks and yeah as soon as that go, which you know up from like three megabytes yeah. per second. and <laughs> as soon as as soon as they implement that i'm gonna start doing that online constant backup thing too yeah, cool. I, 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 you know, it's funny. Ever since that, I've been like toying with my backup system of like how I'm doing it with like because we have Packrat for Dropbox where like it never erases a file. Like I literally retrieved a file from 2013 last night that I've has been erased for three years. That's awesome. Yeah, it's such. Packrat. I'm gonna look. Into yeah, that. yeah, it's four dollars a month. It's wow, because I know Dropbox has like a recovery thing, but it doesn't go back that far, right? It's, it's only like a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's or for as long as you've had this pack rat thing, it'll keep the uh, files. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm gonna get that. Very, very, very cool thing. Um, okay, back to you. So this is the ultimate in you. Let's get into your music taste. Three favorite producers dash mastering engineers. My favorite mastering engineers, I think Ted Jensen's always been a huge, you know, favorite. Probably him and Howie Weinberg were on most of those records when I was like learning about what that was, mm-hmm. you know, you know, listening to to you know Smashing Pumpkins albums and being like, oh my god, who mastered this? Or you know, what is mastering? Mm-hmm. You know. What, I think um, Chris Geringer, who's another one of the guys at Sterling, I, I think does awesome work. And, and beyond that, he's been like one of the coolest guys to me. You know, invited me down there, always, you know, showed me the room and we kind of talked and is always up for like answering any kind of questions I have, you know, like get advice from someone who's done it for a long time. Uh, always made himself like super available. So thankful for that, you know. It's all, always great to have somebody who's been doing it for like, you know, 10 times longer than you or 20 times longer than you when you can say, hey, man, have you ever had this happen and like what did you do? Mm. To get that kind of wisdom is has been indispensable. And, and, you know, I know he works kind of like in a different genre than I do, but I think that he does fantastic work and his insight has been, you know, huge for me. As far as producers, let's see, who's my favorite? One of my favorites from, you know, a little a little while ago was Jerry Finn. Jerry Finn was oh, always yeah. huge. My, that's that's my number one. Yeah, he he his records just always sounded awesome to me, and always reading about like his approach was just you know I I loved the stuff he did. On on a more recent, I, I think that I, I have to give a shout out to Greg Dunn, who you had on. Mm-hmm. Greg is like you know super hardworking guy, and and he's he's one of those guys where he'll send me mixes as he's working on them. 
And he's like, you know, what do you think about this? This is what I don't like about it. This, 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 this. And he sends it to me. I'm like, man, this sounds incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, this sounds ama- This sounds better than like anything I've heard in like the last year come across my desk. And he's like, oh, he's, you know, always trying to like make it better and always, you know, wondering, you know, what am I doing wrong? It's like, you, you, the only thing you're doing wrong is like working on it anymore. It's done. It sounds amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, he, he, everything he does is awesome. And I think he's just got such a cool... You know, he always talks, he talked about in his podcast, like that kind of aesthetic of the vibe of a recording. And, and I think that he's got a really cool taste in, in, in that way. And everything that he does reflects that. And in, in, in there's kind of like this intangible thing about his work that I always loved. And another guy who I, I've been working with a lot, who I think is incredible, is Mike Watts, who you also have. Oh, yeah. He, he, he does amazing work. Oh, he, his, his stuff is incredible. And that guy cares more about the bands he's working with than anybody I've ever witnessed. You know, like he, if he sent me something to master and I like messed it up, I suspect he would come to my house and kick my ass. Like that, <laughs> that's how much, you know, he just loves it. He's so involved with the bands and he gets, you know, so, so behind everything that they do and, you know, really wants to make everything that comes out of his studio great and it is it shows i totally think it shows that's uh, that's pretty rad how about five of your favorite records in your musical growth i think that peter gabriel so is mm-hmm. probably number one nice both great from, record yeah both from like an, an artistic perspective and sonically it was just like huge especially because the way that they used kind of like synthesizers and different sounds like you know that was my first experience when i would hear things and i'd be like this sounds amazing and i don't even know what instrument it is you know i can't it's not a guitar it's not drums it's not bass it's not clearly a synthesizer you know they would combine and layer things in such extraordinary ways to kind of create new instruments in a way and that was always inspiring to me i think all his records are like that another big one is is definitely like the pink floyd stuff you know again just sonically and like playing with different things and themes and moods from songs, you know, and kind of playing with dynamics. And that that was always a big, made a big impression. I know I mentioned the final cut. I mean, it's probably not by any means the most popular Pink Floyd record. Mm. But something about... Uh, how, I, it was funny when you said it, I was like, I don't even remember that one. And I'm a huge Pink Floyd fan. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like this, like, it's like this concept, this wartime concept record. But, you know, like stuff like, you know... it they would have these like interludes between songs where like you would hear something like really quiet and then there's the sound of like a plane flying by and dropping a bomb you know which is just like the loudest thing ever and just like that impact about how they would draw you in with these soft sounds and then like you know just change these dynamics on the fly and it and really use that to make an impact uh that that was huge Another huge one had to be Smashing Pumpkins Siamese Dream that's like hmm. my guitar, my one of my favorite guitar records. I was talking about it with a buddy of mine, and we think that that's like, I mean, I don't know if it's underrated or maybe it's properly rated. I, I guess it was a pretty popular record at the time. Oh, but, yeah. I mean, that record sold millions for yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 sure. And, but I don't know if people look back on it as like this like huge guitar album. You know what I oh, mean? No, like, I, I, I think that, that that is like the thing. That's the, I think it's rep. I mean, I think it's funny because it's the tiniest cymbals and no bass. It's yeah, just it's all just guitar and drums. But the guitars yeah. are so rad. I mean, the guitar yeah. solos on that record are like... I, I, I've, you know, I haven't really heard too much like that before and or, or since. I mean, just like I agree, those yeah. guys wailed. And, uh, and the tones and like kind of like the, the outside the box stuff that they were doing made 
always made a huge impression on me. There's also like that joke, like uh, everybody rushed out and got that pedal that they used on that record, and then no one's record ever sounded like that. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the, the the Mutron biphase. That was the pedal. That, that, so the, the, that's the phaser, and then there's like this. Oh, the big uh, muff. Ex, no, uh, Expandora. I want to say it's called. Oh, Expandora. Hmm. I, I dude, it was like so funny because like everybody I know who'd use that would be like, uh, it didn't work really well. I'll find the link and I'll send it to you. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'd like to hear that because I know that they made this. Um, there was this like VHS. You know, it was like the equivalent of like a behind-the-scenes documentary DVD. It was on VHS then called uh-huh. Viewphoria, and yes. it was like about the growth of the band. And they did this whole section about them. I think they were in Smart Studios with Butch Vig. Yep. And there's this one, one part where they like hold up the biphase pedal, and they're like, "Oh, it's the Mutron biphase. We run yep. everything through this pedal," which was obviously nice. a joke. Yeah. But at the time, myself and my my buddy who I was playing with, we were like, "Oh my God, that's the trick." that we have to get that pedal and run everything through it that's why this record sounds so awesome i owned that big thing for a while when i was on like a major pedal buying spree and it was just not useful enough to justify how much i paid for it sure so if you ran an entire record through it somebody would probably die of like (laughs) but so yeah who else oh you know what was a huge one for me Mm. sam i am clumsy that's a great record. Yeah, that that record came out in like 1994. I, I still think it sounds awesome, and I think it was like so ahead of its time in terms of like kind of a post-punk album. Mm. That something about that, like the songwriting in that record and like the tones. I think it was done by Lou Giordano. I think you're right. Yeah, I don't know why that record always in- influenced me. I you know like the. It wasn't, none of the playing on it was ever flashy. You know, the, it's kind of like the two guitars just kind of meld into this one wall of like awesome guitar. It's, you know, it's not riffy at all. It's just kind of like textural. Yeah, I don't know why. That that record always, it's one of those records I can always go back and listen to and uh, always made a huge impression. An- another one that definitely had a huge Im- impact on me was Weezer Pinkerton. Mm. Huge, huge. Yeah. Because it's like loose, you know, it's like, it's mm-hmm. like not, you know, the whole thing was like they, they didn't really use a producer on that album and they had had this huge commercial success, I guess, from the Blue Album and they mm-hmm. kind of just like went in the opposite direction. But I love that. I love that it's like mm-hmm. goofy at times and like the, it's very like open and it, it kind of has that thing where you can like hear the room that they recorded in. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, Tons of room on that record. Yeah. And like you can kind of like hear how they were like feeling as a band. It almost seems like they were this band that had these cool ideas and they had this money and they were like, OK, let's just like go in and, and, see, and see what happens. And, and that record, you know, again, a pretty awesome guitar record, you know, uh, but I think that, that that one stuck with me. Did you listen to him on that podcast, Song Exploder, yet? No, I have not. Oh, you gotta... gotta, There's really great insight about how they get that band in a room vibe and how... That it's actually, like, a thing they do in a process. It's pretty... I have to say of that podcast, I think it's one of the best episodes that I've not been the biggest Weezer fan for since that record, but that podcast was, like, one of the best things I listened to all year. Yeah, I'm gonna check that out. Yeah, I kind of... I kind of... Didn't get as much into their later stuff as, as that record. Of course, the Blue Album was amazing. Mm-hmm. Yes. But but that that record, and I think that, that that record took a lot of balls to make, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, coming, I don't know if they suspected that it was going to be like a commercial success. Maybe they thought it was going to be. But to, to make this kind of like, you know, that Rick Ocasek, like really like tight production and, you know, uh, to go t- from that to this kind of like super loose, like guys having fun rock album, I think is pretty pretty bold from a band that had some pretty big songs on the previous record and 
I love it. It's my favorite Reezer record for sure. I'm with you. What's a perfect record somebody else made and what about it makes it perfect? Okay, so I know that somebody else said this, but I, I, I have to say it, is, uh, is OK Computer. Oh, nice, I mean, nice. Again, you know, I think Mike Watts said it. I, I could yep. listen to that record. If I could only listen to one record for the rest of my life, it would be that album. I think it's a perfect example of a band working with the exact right people, you know, at the exact mm-hmm. right time. I mean, it's just like the stars kind of aligned for that, you know, and it it's amazing. I mean, I know that like Rolling Stone, it was like the album of the year and, and all this stuff, mm-hmm. and it, it's it's definitely like a monumental record. I just... All the songs are amazing. Like every texture that comes and goes, I mean, it's just it's just perfect. You know, I, it's something that I always strived for. Like that 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 like low pass reverb sound on the vocals. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like legendary to me. I love it. I can I can never get sick of it. That's like always like a reset record for me to come in the room and I put it on and you know after I listen to a couple tunes, I'm and always in a good place to do work. Yeah, that, it is. And you know, like the the most game changing thing for me with that record was like. I guess that record came out when I was like 18 or 19. And then like when I was really starting to get the production, I was like finding old interviews and scouring anything I could. And then reading that Nigel Godrich was like, yeah, I've never spent four hours on a, on a mix. And that record was mostly two and a half to three and a half hour mixes. You're just like, fuck, they must've been nailing everything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I heard about that. I guess they got it so, you know, set in, in the studio that, that it really didn't require a big mix. And that's, something that kind of always stuck with me too. I, that was something that I always strived for in my production work. Like I wanted to get it so that you just put up faders and you pan stuff and it was like mm-hmm. almost there. You mm-hmm. know, I, I always kind of had that, my outlook, you know, was stuff like, look, if you put a 57 in the right spot in front of a speaker and it doesn't sound good, like it doesn't sound good. Make yeah, it, you know, totally. the, make the guitar sound good. And I always kind of went for that, like get as much of it done it, you know, at the source, you know, I, I, I always had this thing that I, that I thought of what, which was like, if you start with the player, every step of the chain, when you move away from the player is less important, you know, mm-hmm. the player is the most important. The instrument is important, but maybe less. The microphone is important, but less. The mic pre is important, but you know, as you get down the line, it's like, it's like if you have a mix, you know, and I think everybody's been there where you're like working on something or if you're working on a master and it's just, you're working on it and you're working on it and it's just not coming together. You could be having a bad day, but I think more often than not, you're trying to compensate for a problem that you could maybe go back and address. And, it, it, you know, like if, you, if you're trying to EQ a guitar track forever and it's just not sounding good, maybe it's just not, maybe it just doesn't sound good. You know what I mean? You, you can only mm-hmm. do so much. So that I definitely learned it from that record. I, I'm right there with you. So tell me your favorite record of most recent times and what inspires you about it. Probably the two records that I listen to the most that have come out in the last couple of years are Tycho's Awake. Uh-huh. I just can't stop listening to that album. Something about it. It just puts me in a good mood. I, I run, and putting mm. that record on when I run is like, I feel like I'm like in a movie, you know? <laughs> <laughs> nice, um, yeah. But something about that, and like... It's funny because my I put it on when I clean the house and it just gets me motivated and it, it like makes me think clearly. And my wife likes it, but she's not very into like instrumental music, you know. She's mm-hmm. kind of got that like, oh, you know, I would love this so much better if someone was singing over it. So we'll take like a long car drive and that's usually what I reach for. And I could tell she's like, oh, this again, you know, because I just <laughs> play it to death. That and I think... Probably, if you looked at like my Spotify or iTunes, the other record that I've played the most in the last 
year or two would be the Aesop Rock, the last mm. Aesop Rock record. Not the one that just came out, which is amazing, but it's mm. still very new. But the one bet- before that, Skeleton, it's called, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, Aesop Rock is like a super, like, intellectual hip-hop guy. Yes. Uh, but something about it, that, which is it's kind of ironic because I don't really do too much hip-hop. But something about his music just, like, connects with me. I think I listen to that record two or three times a week. It's just, like, I don't know, takes me to another place. I think it's brilliant. Nice. No, I think so, I think anybody who works on music, we need something that's not what we're working on all the time. Like, I always tell people, like, I listen to so much dance music because I'm so tired of hearing guitars 50 hours a week. Yeah, man. I mean, when I was producing and listening to that all the time... Uh, the only thing I listened to was like sports talk radio, you know, mm. it's like the opposite of what, you know, and it was just like refreshing to me. And I think it, it happens with a lot of people, you know, I, I listen to music now again, because I don't know, I think that, you know, when I'm mastering, I guess technically I listen more than I did when I was tracking or, or a greater mm. volume of songs, but my head is in a different space. So it's kind of refreshed me and I, and I, and I enjoy listening to music. But when I was like grinding out production and just like tracking guitars and vocals every day and every day, I kind of lost like my love for listening and I think that was a a part of my decision I wanted to like rekindle that you know I felt like I was just working so hard and just slaving away that that it was a little bit less fun for me so I'm glad to have rekindled that yeah this is the thing a lot of people say I I, you know I can literally remember when I was coming up like all my the favorite producer mentors they'd never listen to me like I'm never gonna be like this and I totally turned into that person and now um Whenever I'm in book writing mode, I don't work as much in the studio. And it's like, when I'm writing, I listen to tons of music. I'm like, right now, I'm like, wow, I have eight records I like. Like, I haven't liked eight records oh, since the last book I wrote. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it definitely it's, like, is, it's easy. It's like, I, I, I always use the analogy. It's like, if you're like an electrician, like, you probably don't come home and like, mess with the outlets in your house you know what I mean it's just like it's your day job and as much as you you know you may have loved it in the first place and that's why you get into it you know it's like ba- baseball players probably don't come home and like well maybe they do they're professional baseball players that's probably <laughs> a bad example but you know I mean it's your it's your day job you get you get it you get your fill of listening to music during the day and mm-hmm. uh, and I think that it's it's important to see, try if you can find ways to like keep that love uh, of listening to music alive you know because that's what got you into it in the first place I, that's very well put so our last question uh what have you been working on lately yeah so uh i did the the new seosin record is coming out in very cool in a week yeah and I'm, I'm really stoked on that i'm stoked to have you know been able to do a part of that be a part of that let's see i just did the, the bouncing souls record nice which is, which is coming out i think over the summer mm-hmm. and uh that one was really cool i think that they tracked most of that live to tape nice yeah which which it shows it sounds awesome and very real. Yeah, pizza, pizza guest on this podcast in a couple weeks. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah. Let's see the uh, the new Gates record, which is coming out. Very cool. Yeah, which was like a, which was like a Mike, Mike Watts production. You know, that was one that that record is so great, and you know, it's it's one of those records. And I do this from time to time, but after I worked on it, I like brought it home to my wife, and I was like, "You have to listen to this. Like, just just put headphones on and just listen to this. Pause your podcast and." check this record out and and now it's like you know on on regular uh repeat for us but that was yeah that was one of those bands like you know before i did it you know mike watts who produced it you know we, we got on a phone call and he's like you gotta understand like i put everything into this record you know and, mm. and it was one of the first projects that we had worked on together and he's you know he's kind of like that that you know overprotective father 
and I'm like mm-hmm. going on a date with his daughter. It's like if, <laughs> if she comes back any different, you know, she left, <laughs> you're gonna have hell to pay. And uh, and which I love because I think it really like keeps me on my toes and inspires me to like really mm-hmm. do the absolute best work I, I possibly could. Yeah, so that's I'm very excited about that album. I, I think you make a good point with that. Uh, like you know, there there is actually something that challenges people as if they're like if there's a polite like. I'm going to be nice to you about this, but this better be right. Like, you do feel a little bit more challenged than the band that just comes in and goes, I trust you, do whatever you want. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like, you know, I've got, like, the guys here that send me all their masters. Like, mm-hmm. I always try to do my absolute best work. But mm-hmm. there's that, in the back of my mind, I know that, like, if I am having an off day or mm-hmm. if I accidentally, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not perfect. Nobody, ba- you know, oh, yeah. uh, even the best hitters strike out 70% of the time. So it's like, you know, if I if I do something and it's not perfect, they're going to be like, hey, man, you know, why don't you make this tweak? And I, you know, there are other guys who I know that if I send them something that, like, isn't, like, at least very close on the first pass, mm-hmm. they're going to be like, dude, what are you thinking, you know? Yeah. So, I, you know, when I'm working with those guys, it's like maybe I'll, you know, print it and then, like, sit on it for a day, an extra day, and, like, listen to it in my car and listen to it at home, you know, which is something I, I typically don't feel like I have to do now that I'm really used to the room. But... I, yeah, I, I like having that because then I try to like take that approach and it's like now I'm going to up my game and I'm going to apply this to every project, you know? Yeah, and I you may, you may also make a great point that like there is off days. Like, you know, like I can remember having to like tell a band and I'm sure they thought I was just like on a week-long drinking binge or something, but I'm like my ear got clogged up last fall and there was like nothing I was able to do about it. And then like another time I got such a bad sinus thing that I couldn't master or mix or anything. And that's going to happen from time to time. And, you know, we're not immune to human things. Yeah, sure. Like if you get a, if, you know, if I get a cold, that's like, mm-hmm. I, I dread that. I'd almost like rather break a toe, you know, because mm-hmm. when, ha- <laughs> when I have a cold, it's like, I'm useless. I come in here and it's like, I, everything is kind of like off, you know? Mm-hmm. And sometimes you, you have to tell bands, you know, like, what's your deadline? Like, can this wait a couple days? Like, I'm, I'm I gotta be honest with you. I'm just not really hearing right. Or some, some days mm-hmm. you just come in and for no particular reason, like everything just sounds bad. Mm-hmm. You know, you even listen to stuff that you know sounds good and it sounds bad and sometimes on that, those days if i can i'll just like go home and do some dishes or something like that you know? yeah come back yeah i'll do i'll day. do a whole lot of prep work or some other type of work and then i'll be like all right i'm gonna hit i'm just gonna have to work twice as long tomorrow yep yep exactly but i mean that's it's important to make that call you know you could just push through it but ultimately in the end you know it's the the work that suffers so you got to make sure that you you know you put the work first If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 